This is a recording of Evangelical Controversy, a Deeply Fragmented Movement, by Lewis C. Midgley, originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 3, 2013, pages 63-84, through 84, read by Scott Dunaway. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and it is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Review of Kevin T. Bowder, R. Albert Moeller, Jr., John G. Stackhouse, Jr., Roger E. Olson, Four Views on the Spectrum of Evangelicalism, edited by Stanley N. Gundry, Andrew David Nacelli, and Colin Hansen, introduction by Colin Hansen, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Zondervan, 2011. Abstract Four views on the spectrum of evangelicalism should be helpful to Latter-day Saints and others seeking to understand some of the theological controversies lurking behind contemporary fundamentalist evangelical religiosity. Four theologians spread among a spectrum of a spectrum speak for different competing factions of conservative Protestants. Kevin Bowder, for what turns out to be his own somewhat moderate version of Protestant fundamentalism, Al Mohler, for conservative confessional evangelicalism, John Stackhouse, for generic evangelicalism, and Roger Olson, for post-conservative evangelicalism. Each author introduces his own position, and then is critiqued in turn by the others, after which there is a rejoinder. In addition, as I point out in detail, each of these authors has something negative to say about the faith of Latter-day Saints. Fragmentation and Diversity of Opinion Colin Hansen's introduction sets out the problem to be addressed in four views on the spectrum of evangelicalism. According to Hansen, even if immediately after World War II it once made sense to speak of evangelicals as a unified body, quote, simply labeling ourselves evangelical no longer suffices, end quote. Why? The movement, currently known as evangelical, was launched in the mid-1940s as a large umbrella under which both various diverse opinions and competing factions could join in a concerted effort to replace the older fundamentalism. However, what is currently known, especially in America, as the evangelical movement now includes, according to Hansen, quote, conservative, progressive, post-conservative, and pre-progressive evangelicals. We are traditional, creedal, biblical, piestic, anti-creedal, ecumenical, and fundamentalist. We are followers of Christ and red-letter Christians, end quote. What this means, Hansen acknowledges, is that evangelicals, quote, are everything, so we are nothing, end quote. Hansen then provides his own account of the often told story of how the evangelical movement arose during and immediately after World War II as an effort to blunt the influences of the older movement known as fundamentalism. 
At first, those now known as evangelicals called their new movement, quote, neo-evangelical, end quote, indicating that their movement was a novelty, but they soon came to use the much older label evangelical for a new and hopefully much more sophisticated and culturally relevant and less belligerent version of conservative Protestantism. This new movement was primarily an effort by Billy Graham and his friends, who created the magazine Christianity Today, which became the flagship publication of the evangelical movement. The goal was to provide an alternative to the older fundamentalist movement. Al Mohler admits that what is currently known as the, as the evangelicalism was, quote, born out of a deep concern to identify a posture distinct from Protestant fundamentalism, end quote. This is, of course, a cautious reference to the fact that more than 50 years ago, Billy Graham and his wealthy associates established a kind of broad tent under which those with different conservative Protestant opinions could, without lapsing into Protestant liberalism, work in a common effort to move beyond fundamentalist ideology. Their efforts were intended to dampen the influence of the fundamentalism they saw as a seriously flawed version of conservative Protestantism. Granting that evangelicalism covers a wide variety of beliefs, or constitutes a wide spectrum of opinion, Hansen concludes that, quote, If the descriptor evangelical cannot stand on its own, then it is of little use. There is, quote, he laments, Quote, no coherent movement, only an endless collection of self-styled labels created by Christians for their Facebook profiles. End quote. Some evangelical scholars, such as David F. Wells, have even questioned whether an evangelical movement even exists. Hence, Hansen's question: quote, When tempted to leave behind the headaches of this eclectic movement with no leader and no membership, we pause and ask: But where should we go? End quote. A unity in the diversity? As the essays in Spectrum indicate, there is still no agreement on exactly what constitutes evangelicalism and what separates this movement from various, quote, churches, end quote, or even what clearly distinguishes it, other than style, from the older fundamentalism against which it was a reaction. The mutual concern of the three evangelical contributors to Spectrum is to identify what they consider a common core of essential defining beliefs. Each respondent draws somewhat different boundaries and even differs on what constitutes a minimal core of shared belief. They do not deny that there is a spectrum of belief, even though a spectrum has no core or center. As part of their efforts to describe and debate the diversity of opinion in contemporary conservative Protestantism, these four distinguished authors manifest a stereotyped anxiety about the faith of Latter-day Saints. Each explicitly include the Church of Jesus Christ from what they insist is authentic Christianity. It seems that, if well-informed Protestant authors do not agree on what exactly constitutes the authentic conservative Protestant faith, then at least they agree on what to exclude. Put another way, the concern of these four authors about the faith of Latter-day Saints is part of conservative Protestant boundary maintenance. What these authors seem to agree on is the rejection of certain competing truth claims. They struggle over the soundness of theological speculation circulating within the conservative Protestant movement. What they agree on is that Roman Catholic Church and the Church of Jesus Christ are not genuinely Christian. 
while they struggle over the soundness of theological speculation currently circulating within the conservative Protestant movement. Bowder, speaking for a brand of moderate fundamentalism, grants that, quote, no one can speak for all fundamentalists, end quote. So it seems that there is much diversity of opinion even or especially in the older, older fundamentalist camp. He is, however, confident that fundamentalists are concerned about the need for separation from fellowship with apostates, that is, those who wrongly claim to be Christians and yet deny Bowder's own fundamentalist understanding of the gospel. He sees the necessity of opposing theological systems that, quote, claim to adhere to Christianity while they actually deny the gospel, end quote. And who exactly might do that? Bowder claims that what Latter-day Saints and other groups, quote, preach as gospel contradicts the biblical gospel. Therefore, the adherents of these religions should not be recognized as Christians at all. They should be regarded as apostates, end quote. He also insists that, quote, the Roman Catholic gospel is false, end quote, despite the fact that, quote, unlike Arianism and Mormonism, end quote, it affirms the Trinitarian orthodoxy, end quote. Also, according to Bowder, quote, Catholicism represents an apostate rather than a Christian system of religion, end quote. Bowder insists that, quote, this perspective is hardly unique to fundamentalism, end quote, which is true. All of, all of this for Bowder, the em emphatic exclusion of Latter-day Saints, Roman Catholics, and liberal Protestants from his understanding of Christianity, involves questions of, quote, minimal Christian fellowship, end quote. There are heretics with whom fundamentalists must not have even minimal fellowship. A fundamentalist must, he insists, avoid fellowship with those who, even while claiming to be Christian, actually deny the gospel. Bowder tends to mimic Moeller's version of evangelicalism on this issue. Only then does Bowder address the minimal Christian fellowship, end quote, that a fundamentalist might wish to have with those who only more or less subscribe to his theology. He incenses that Moeller's writings, quote, reverberate with fundamentalist ideas, end quote, on this and some other issues. Hence, there is an accommodation between Bowder and Moeller, at least on this issue, since Bowder opposes, quote, hyper-fundamentalism, end quote, and Moeller describes his own move away from an early strong hostility towards fundamentalism, and hence his current affinity for Bowder's version of that ideology. Such are the tides of Indonesian theological warfare. Quote, honesty requires, Muller insists, that the term evangelical be defined by its necessity. In this sense, evangelical has been and remains a crucial term because we simply cannot live without it. Some word has to define what it means to be a conservative Protestant who is not quite simply a Roman Catholic or theological Protestant liberal. End quote. I take these rather opaque sentences to mean that boundary lines must be drawn to exclude those who presumably are not correctly Protestant and hence also not genuinely Christian. Moeller, with his version of five-point Calvinism, writes as if he speaks with a special authority for the entire evangelical movement, and hence for what he believes is authentic historical, biblical, creedal, orthodox Christianity. 
But this collection of essays demonstrates otherwise. Instead of showing unity, spectrum, as the name indicates, demonstrates fragmentation and diversity. That is, a wider range of competing beliefs, littering a battleground in which factions with different ideologies struggle for hegemony. But even Roger Olson, who emphatically opposes Calvinism, refuses to worship with those he does not consider authentic Christians, for instance, Latter-day Saints and Roman Catholics. Quote, Bowder and I agree, Olson writes, that the Roman Catholic Church teaches false doctrines and rejects true doctrines. End quote. Olson might, he indicates, attend a Roman Catholic Mass, but only as an observer. He also reports that he has, quote, attended ecumenical dialogue events with Mormons at Brigham Young University without worshiping with them. Like most evangelicals and even so-called mainstream Protestants, I consider the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints a heretical sect and not a Christian denomination, to say nothing of the fourth branch of Christianity. However, engaging in face-to-face -face dialogue with them has proven beneficial to me. I have had to revise some of my opinions about them, which is good because holding wrong opinions of others is a bad thing even if they are apostates or heretics." Stackhouse also takes a swipe at the faith of Latter-day Saints. After describing what he considers five crucial, quote, convictions, end quote, that he believes defines what he considers evangelicalism, and hence also who is an authentic evangelical, he admits that, quote, certain Mormons can and do share all five convictions of evangelicals, but they are not evangelicals because their beliefs, affections, and practices show them to be not Christians, end quote. He adds that he is, quote, not presuming to pronounce on their state before God. I don't mean not Christian, the way we sometimes mean it, namely unsaved, end quote. But if the Latter-day Saints are not even Christians because of their beliefs and practices, as Stackhouse claims, is this not an indication that they cannot possibly be saved? Or are some non-evangelicals saved despite not being authentic Christians? Who exactly is saved, and who wrongly imagines, or only pretends here and now that they are saved, is a sticky issue for Protestants, but it is not one that Stackhouse cares to address. He offers a reason. Quote, for the purposes of this discussion, he adds, evangelicals need not enter into the mysterious realm of sorting out who will enter the kingdom of heaven and who won't. End quote. He asserts that, quote, Mormonism differs so markedly from Orthodox Christianity that until rather recently the vast majority of Mormons saw the two religious identities as not only different, but even competitive for the title of true Church of Jesus Christ. End quote. What, is, what this sta statement seems to demonstrate is that Stackhouse believes that some evangelical version of Christian faith is normative. This assumption forms the ground for the antipathy set out in spectrum towards the faith of the saints. But the fact is that conservative Protestants, much like Latter-day Saints, Roman Catholics, and Orthodox, each in their own unique way, all claim to be in some sense the true Church of Jesus Christ just as all competing versions of the fundamentalist evangelical movement claim to be the authentic, apostolic, biblical, orthodox Christianity, against which all other claims must be measured and graded, as the essays in Spectrum demonstrate. Competing Master Narratives 
According to Moeller, Stackhouse rejects the proper understanding of the label evangelical, but the proclivity to collapse one's own definition of evangelical into what constitutes orthodox Christianity is at least in part what has generated the spectrum of competing opinions being debated in this volume. The crucial, ish, crucial issue is what constitutes authentic Christianity. Only when the boundary issues are settled can these authors tackle the question of whether moderate fundamentalism or some competing version of the evangelical movement speaks for authentic Christianity. Hence the following bald assertion by Moeller, quote, Ruled out are heretics, who are not actually Christians at all, and those who hold to theologies that are sim simply not recognizably Christian, like the Mormons, end quote. Stackhouse admits that at least, quote, certain Mormons, end quote, share what he considers his crucial so-called five basic conviction, convictions of what define evangelical faith, but even these are not Christians. It turns out that Bowder, Moeller, Stackhouse, and Olson set out objections to the faith of the saints in their effort to set boundaries to exclude false claims to being Christian. This seems to me to have been done as part of what each considered the crucial defining attributes of their own version of conservative Protestantism, which each author considers the best current embodiment of authentic Christian faith. Each of these four apologists, for a different reason and hence competing brand of evangelical faith, sees their way of being evangelical as the key to being genuinely Christian. Be that as it may, both Latter-day Saints, whom these authors deny are Christians, as well as Orthodox and Roman Catholics, do not care to be included under a label that merely identifies a movement within recent conservative Protestantism. In addition, both Roman Catholics and Latter-day Saints deny that contemporary Protestantism, or one of its competing factions, determines who may or may not use the word Christian, or what constitutes authentic Christian faith. The Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Latter-day Saints each have their own narrative setting out their claim to be the most authentic Christian faith. By defending his Armenian objections to versions of Calvinism, Olson offers one possible alternative account of the conservative Protestant grounding narrative. This proclivity, which each author manifests, demonstrates and explains the diversity and quarrels found in Spectrum. In addition, each of the other major competing traditions makes a claim to be what Stackhouse calls, quote, the true Church of Jesus Christ, end quote. Each of the competing claims, both within the evangelical movement and between the four major traditions, that is, Latter-day Saint, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Orthodox, are necessarily in competition. Instead of a unity of faith and hence a harmony, there is disputation and a cacophony, earlier signs of which once set young Joseph Smith on his prayerful quest for divine assistance, which led, from the LDS perspective, to the opening of the heavens and a new dispensation of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Extent of Radical Evangelical Controversy some differences between contemporary evangelicals tend to challenge what are often held to be the essential elements of the Protestant Reformation. Some of this shows up in Spectrum. For example, Moeller objects strongly to the position taken by N.T. Tom Wright, an Anglican and the foremost Protestant biblical scholar, who self-identifies as an evangelical. 
Wright insists that the stance taken on justification by Luther and Calvin, following Augustine, that a person is justified and in that sense saved the moment he or she confesses Jesus Christ, is a radical misunderstanding of what was taught by the Apostle Paul. Wright's position on this issue deeply troubles Moeller, who insists that, quote, Justification by faith alone is an evangelical essential, a first-order issue, end quote. The fact is that Wright's views on justification fit rather well with what is clearly taught in the Book of Mormon. Nothing in the Book of Mormon suggests that one is justified the moment one confesses Jesus, at which time one receives an alien righteousness while still remaining totally depraved. Instead, what is taught is that one's ultimate or final justification follows the necessarily difficult process of seeking and allowing the Holy Spirit to purge, cleanse, purify, and hence sanctify the one who is, is thereby genuinely reborn through a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Latter-day Saints will, I believe, easily recognize both Wright's understanding of the way of the Lord and also Moeller's typically typical contrasting stance on this important matter. Muller also defends penal substitution, the dominant Protestant understanding of the Atonement, which is the theory that Jesus of Nazareth somehow became objectively guilty of every sin, past, present, and future, or his death would not have redeemed totally depraved humans by the imposition of an alien unrighteousness on sinners. Most of the ways of of understanding the atonement, of course, involve the idea that Jesus did for humans what they could not possibly do for themselves. But in the penal substitution theory, Jesus is not seen as an innocent, sinless substitute for sinful humanity. He is instead pictured as somehow being guilty in a real way of all past, present, and future sins of totally depraved humans. He became in our place the focused object of the wrath of God. Martin Luther, in a commentary on Galatians 3.13, insisted that, quote, All the prophets say this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer, etc., there has ever been anywhere in the world. He is not acting in his own person now. Now he is not the Son of God, born of the Virgin, but he is a sinner who has and bears the sin of Paul, the former blasphemer, persecutor, and assaulter, of Peter, who denied Christ, of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, and who caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of the Lord. In short, he has and bears all the sins of all men in his body, not in the sense that he has committed them, but in the sense that he took those sins committed by us upon his own body, in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. Therefore, this general law of Moses included him, although he was innocent so far as his own person was concerned, for it found him among sinners and thieves. Thus, a magistrate regards someone as a criminal and punishes him if he catches him among thieves, even though the man has never committed anything evil or worthy of death. Christ was not only found among sinners, having assumed the flesh and blood of those who were sinners and thieves, and who were immersed in all sorts of sin. Therefore, when the law found him among thieves, it condemned and executed him as a thief. In this typical Protestant theory of the Atonement, Jesus Christ was both sinless and also the ultimate sinner. 
If his bloody death was to be efficacious, either one, for those pictured in Calvinist theology as predestined at the moment of creation out of nothing to salvation, or two, potentially for all mankind who may decide to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, in other words, competing Protestant dogmas, Jesus had to be fully guilty of all human sins. This, of course, flies in the face of what is taught in the Book of Mormon, where Jesus is pictured as having made a holy, sinless sacrifice for all of humanity, which is something he could not possibly have done for what they could not possibly have done for themselves. Managed this with a glorious victory over all the demonic powers that beset human beings during their mortal probation by, one, defeating mortal death and thereby opening the door for an eventual universal resurrection, and two, by also making available merciful forgiveness of sin for all those who choose to follow him, seek and accept sanctification as genuine saints, and endure faithfully to the end. Moeller sees this penal substitution theory as essential to evangelical identity, and hence to his understanding of what constitutes the authentic Christian faith. Those who reject penal substitution theory of the atonement, Moeller explains, do so mainly on moral grounds. They see no good reason to insist that God imputed all human sin to sinless Jesus of Nazareth and then demanded, in Moeller's words, quote, the blood sacrifice of his son to satisfy his divine wrath and display his righteousness, end quote. Moeller, however, also admits that critics of penal substitution theory of the atonement see this theory, as I do, as, quote, a slander against God's own character, end quote. In addition, he indicates that those who reject the Protestant's penal substitution theory of the atonement do so because, quote, such a rendering of God is immoral. Some have gone so far as to claim that such a penal rendering of the atonement amounts to a form of child abuse, end quote. Moeller argues, quote, that denying penal substitution as the central biblical concept for our evangelical understanding of the atonement is, in the end, fatal to our witness to the gospel. Muller insists that Jesus of Nazareth somehow actually became guilty of all human sin, thus drawing the justified wrath of God on him. This explains his brutal torture, extreme suffering, and bloody death. Put another way, God the Father had God the Son slaughtered to satisfy his wrath, and thereby in some way reveal his righteousness, as well as make it possible for his righteousness to be imputed to totally depraved sinners, if they either confess his name, or were predestined to salvation at the moment of creation out of nothing. Stackhouse also insists that penal substitution is, quote, a vital and non-negotiable part of Christian theology in general, without which any understanding of salvation is seriously deficient, end quote. And he ends his treatment of the controversy over penal substitution by proclaiming that, quote, evangelical theologians, therefore, must not jettison substitutionary atonement, end quote. The Book of Mormon, I believe, sets out an account of the story of that atonement that differs in crucial ways from the sophisticated Protestant speculation on this all-important matter. Latter-day Saints, I believe, may find the penal substitution theory of the atonement especially odd, since the Book of Mormon makes it clear that the Holy One of Israel, the one known before his incarnation as Yahweh, 
was sinless, and hence also an innocent victim of demonic powers over which he gained a final victory over both the death of our bodies and, on condition of our faithfulness, of our souls. The two deaths are all are that all humans face. All of this is set out clearly in the Book of Mormon. Roger Olson, who describes the central place of penal substitution in the Reformation, cautionly cautiously mentions some negative reactions by unnamed evangelicals to it, quote, primarily on moral grounds, end quote. He may even come close to agreeing with me in objecting to penal substitution, since he indicates it, in a, it is an enigmatic remark that, quote, fundamentalists confuse their own interpretation of the Bible, that is, penal substitution atonement, with the Bible itself, end quote. It would please me if, for Olson, it is not just penal fund petulant fundamentalists who insist that penal substitution is proclaimed in the Bible. Spectrum also includes some responses to Al Mohler's very negative estimates of what is called open theism, which challenges, I believe correctly, elements of classical theism. His rejection of open theism are shared by Bowder and also by Stackhouse, who describes the nasty controversy that has taken place within evangelical intellectual circles over open theism. What or who really speaks for evangelicalism? It is not clear to those who opine in Spectrum why Moeller insists that his stance is, quote, confessional, end quote. It is clear, however, that he is determined to define the evangelical movement in narrow, strictly Calvinist terms. Moreover, he also seems to have in mind the great ecumenical creeds and later confessions which Protestants took over from the Orthodox and Roman Catholics. Be that as it may, he claims that, quote, at the end of the day, the confessional church must do what the evangelical movement cannot, confess with specificity the faith once delivered to the saints, end quote. All of this and more is packed into an interesting conversation about the definition of evangelicalism, in which Moeller's critics contend that the movement is much broader than his Calvinist theological preferences permit. For him, as well as for fundamental the fundamentalist Bowder, the evangelical umbrella is too large for true Christian fellowship, since it includes heretics. Moeller demands a tighter circle, and Bowder chides Olson for having turned Billy Graham's evangelical, quote, broad tent, end quote, of vaguely vague family resemblances with, with much diversity into a, quote, circus tent, end quote, and not, quote, a revival tent, or perhaps a menagerie of e ecclesiastical oddities and curiosities. End quote. Much of Spectrum is an effort to both understand the metaphor of embracing or facing a supposed center of belief and to delineate the extent of theological boundaries, that is, it is a quarrel over classification logic in which each of those who speak for a competing faction sets out their position in an effort to justify their own theological preferences. It is not clear who or what is de to determine whether or not one is facing or embracing a center, or who or what determines what constitutes a center, or how one distinguishes secondary questions from truly fundamental beliefs. Beyond mere slogans, there is no agreement on what, if anything, constitutes the central core of belief. The center simply does not hold. One reason is that Protestantism has no magisterium. 
being an anarchy from the start, it is instead, among other things, a diverse and shifting theological movement, and hence has a broad spectrum of diverse beliefs. The fact is that those who self-identify as evangelicals are free to expand or contract the movement's assortment of competing beliefs in whatever way suits their fancy. If this is close to being true, we must ask why evangelicals like Olson, whose historical scholarship is often congruent with the larger LDS historical narrative, insist on excluding the faith of the saints from their understanding of authentic Christian faith. I do not see this proclivity as necessarily a sign of ignorance, confusion, or bigotry. I respect evangelical scholarship far too much to adopt that explanation. It is, instead, an indication of evangelical boundary maintenance. It may also be an effort on the part of evangelical scholars to avoid the kinds of ignominy heaped upon the genteel and gentle Calvinist Richard Mew for his famous apologies to the saints for the outrages of the counter-cult industry. With all of this in mind, I strongly recommend Spectrum for those seeking a better understanding of the evangelical movement, and also why learned evangelicals find it necessary to distinguish their faith from that of Latter-day Saints, since they tend to differ with each other as much as they do with Latter-day Saints. A Hodgepodge of Competing Beliefs Have I overstated the extent or significance of Protestant diversity? I don't think so. Without even considering liberal Protestantism, or the dramatic growth of the Pentecostal religiosity, which had no voice in spectrum, there is within conservative Protestantism an ongoing struggle between remnants of the old fundamentalism and the wide variety of opinion assembled under the umbrella provided by Billy Graham when he and his associates set in place what is now known as the Evangelical Movement. There is, in addition to that, to which I have called attention, additional evidence of diversity. It simply will not do for evangelical apologists who insist that this diversity and the controversy it generates involves merely unimportant secondary issues, thus implying a solid agreement on core beliefs. Why? In addition to the evidence found in Spectrum, the InterVarsity Press, through IVP Academic, has published a series entitled Spectrum Multiview Books. These 19 volumes illustrate the wide variety of beliefs currently found in conservative Protestant circles. In addition, Zondervan has similar 16-volume counterpoint series, providing additional evidence of the competing beliefs held by evangelicals. Furthermore, Protestant scholars have broadened the scope of competing viewpoints beyond even what can be seen in these 35 volumes. Calvinists, like Al Mohler, are not pleased with the hodgepodge or jumble of Protestant beliefs. In the role of gatekeepers of evangelical orthodoxy, they tend to drift back closer to the older fundamentalism. Those who both describe and celebrate diversity of beliefs are primarily not Calvinists who strive to shrink the range of permissible issues about which disagreement and debate is suitable, and it also explains their antipathy towards certain brands of contemporary Protestant theology, such as social Trinitarianism, open theism, and N.T. Wright's approach to Paul, all of which are much closer to LDS beliefs than five-point Calvinism. 
Latter-day Saints are familiar with defections within their own community, and are also insistent on a debilitating great apostasy that made necessary the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostasy was great, but not total or complete. Latter-day Saints are not adverse to accepting the self-identification as Christian of virtually any individual or group. This is, however, not the case among contemporary conservative Protestants, who tend to have serious misgivings about the Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions. Roger Olson, whose historical scholarship I admire, while denying that the Church of Jesus Christ is Christian, will worship with Calvinists. The reason is that he believes they are Christ-centered. My own experience with both Orthodox and Roman Catholic worship and dogmatic theology indicates that, despite the large differences from my own beliefs and mode of worship, they are both at their best clearly Christ-centered and hence Christian. I overlook the inevitable hypocrisy at the chapel or cathedral door. I look instead for signs of sanctification, rather than proper, presumably Orthodox theology. Conservative Protestants, and those with fundamentalist proclivities such as those often found in the sectarian counter-cult industry, often claim that the faith of Latter-day Saints does not comport with what they believe is biblical, historical, creedal Christianity. Unfortunately, versions of this opinion turn up among distinguished evangelical scholars. Even some who are aware of the rubbish spewed out against the Church of Jesus Christ by counter-cultists, and who have themselves been targets of counter-cult revilement, are inclined to make a distinction between what they describe as the, quote, mainstream Christian tradition, end quote, and what the saints believe. Richard Mew, for example, tells us that among what he calls, quote, mainstream Christianity in all its forms, end quote, that is, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant, there has always been a plethora of arguments, quote, carried on within the mainstream of Christianity, end quote. He illustrates this, his point by mentioning quarrels between Protestants and Roman Catholics over whether there, quote, are additional sources of revealed truth, end quote, other than merely Bi the Bible or Eastern Orthodox over, quote, divination, end quote, or theosis competing master narratives. The large branches of Christian faith, that is, the Orthodox Roman Catholics, Latter-day Saints, as well as the various varieties of Protestantism, each have their own narrative, or a complex of somewhat competing stories, with which they strive to distinguish themselves from other Christian traditions. Spectrum supports my belief that there is a wide variety of competing beliefs on a host of important issues within contemporary conservative Protestantism. Master narratives made known each tradition, make known each tradition, or, or in the case of Protestants, factions, to its own communicants by picturing itself as the authentic bearer of the original apostolic Christian faith and hence the true Church while the other traditions are understood as flawed, as lesser or inferior versions of Christian faith, or as flatly false. Primarily because of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, the Latter-day Saints see themselves as the covenant people of God. This prevents both the saints and also their sectarian critics from confusing the Church of Jesus Christ with some version of evangelicalism. I see this as both desirable and providential. This has been a recording of Evangelical Controversy, A Deeply Fragmented Movement by Louis C. Midgley 
originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 3, 2013, pages 63 through 84. Read by Scott Dunaway. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.